Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. And today I've got two interviews for the price of one, which is zero dollars. Uh, first, we've got Matt Bellany, formerly of Hollywood Reporter, and now of Puck. We'll talk about what Puck is. It's fun to say Puck with a P. Uh, we are talking about two big Hollywood deals, or at least Hollywood events. Both involve stuff that is very relevant to people who listen to this podcast about media and technology. We talk about Scarlett Johansson's fight with Disney and streaming and whether it's just about money or about money and the future of streaming. Maybe somewhere in the middle. And we also talk about Reese Witherspoon's uh, sale of her company, Hello Sunshine, which values it at $900 million dollars. Which is different than selling, saying she sold it for nine hundred million dollars, but we can talk about that. It's a, it's a big deal, and why people think it's worth hiring celebrity production studios at this moment in time. Um, Matt, it's smart and incisive. You will enjoy listening to him. You will also enjoy listening to Derek Thompson from the Atlantic. He will make you smarter. Just just you can just bathe in his audio. Um, I had Derek on because we had a semi fight on Twitter about media criticism and, and more important how best the media should be covering covid are you still covering covid because it has not gone away and that's i guess what we're really talking about here is is how do we cover something that is not only not going away but changing and moving and what's the best way to get appropriate information to people i'm making the sound i think duller than it is which is not a great way to introduce a podcast but believe me it's a good conversation you will like it okay see for yourself First up, here's Matt Bellany from Puck. I'm here with Matt Bellany, formerly of The Hollywood Reporter, now one of the, the leading members of Puck. We can say Puck out loud. Uh, how do we describe Puck, Matt? Uh, we are a next-generation digital magazine that covers influence and power and money. Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Washington, finance, all the different power centers of America. If you listen to this podcast, you have read some of the coverage about Puck. You probably have read some of Matt's newsletters. They become an, uh, a must read immediately. Matt, um, you publish your newsletter once a week. I heard a disturbing rumor that twice this a may week. not be a twice a week. What? Thursday, um, Sundays. Are you going to keep cranking them out or once Puck really launches or is this a placeholder? Yeah, I mean, initially I wasn't sure if we would keep them going, but People seem to like them, and they kind of yeah. hit a nerve. So I think we're going to keep it going. Okay, we'll do more puck talk at the end of the conversation. I want to spend most of our time talking about 
uh, two big stories out of Hollywood in the last week. They're both about women and streaming and money. Let's start with the newest one. Reese Witherspoon has sold her company, Hello Sunshine, um, for a, a theoretical value of $900 million to a private equity firm. Um, Kevin Mayer from Disney, Tom Staggs from Disney are going to are running this unnamed media company that's bought Hello Sunshine. Um, you, like I, when we saw st- reports that there was a, a Reese Witherspoon production company for sale with a theoretical $1 billion price tag, I think rolled our eyes a little bit and said, that's not a real number. But it looks like it's kind of close to a real number. What is Hello Sunshine and what are you getting when you buy it for, for nearly a billion dollars? That's a great question. And I, and I think the best way to discuss this is what this deal is and what it isn't. Because first of all, it, it is a $900 million valuation of the deal. And as you know very well, like that doesn't mean anyone is getting $900 million. There was a $500 million payout to investors in this company, including AT&T and Lorene Jobs' company. And there are various shares that they're getting in this new company that Blackstone is backing. And if everything goes according to plan and they can grow this and meet their revenue hurdles and all this other stuff, then it's $900 million. So so a half billion dollars is traded hands. That's real money. People got money. And And good for them. I'm not going to diminish it at all. Imputes a value of $900 million. Reese Witherspoon presumably owns a big chunk of that. Good for her as well. Importantly, they get board seats on this new company that is now out in the market in Hollywood hunting for various production companies. So this is the whole thesis here. The thesis is, is that if Blackstone, you know, headed by Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, can seek out these production companies that are serving various niches within the content universe. Reese Witherspoon is going after women-oriented content. They have had conversations with, you know, LeBron James's company, which is uh, towards uh, pointed towards diverse audiences. They've uh, they've looked at foreign uh, companies that have foreign niches, and if they can roll up these production companies, even though they don't own the assets that they are producing, there is value there in creating a massive production entity that can serve as the so-called arms dealer for all of these various streaming services that are going to consolidate and dominate the content industry. So this was going to happen regardless of the Amazon MGM deal. A lot of people sort of track Amazon paying eight to $9 billion for MGM is sort of kicking this off and saying, well, if that's worth that much, then how much is this worth? The premise with MGM and Amazon, though, is MGM has a catalog of existing movies and and TV shows that Amazon can stream now. They own partial rights to James Bond. They own other IP that Amazon can turn into other things. When you buy Reese Witherspoon Company or maybe LeBron James Company, as far as I know, they don't own anything. I think you just said they don't own anything. So what are you getting? So, yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of people have compared this to the Amazon deal, which is weird because it's totally different. It's not a library play. When you're buying these companies, you are essentially buying their taste, their infrastructure, their relationships. Reese Witherspoon has a book club that has, you know, millions of followers and she can presumably communicate with them about about her various projects. Um, They have access to material. They ha- they have a particular specialty in the kind of content that they make, and that's presumably valuable. Then the question becomes, why not just do a deal with them? Why do you have to own them? 
And that's the real question here. I mean, another way to think about this deal, and I've heard this from several people, is this is this is not just a production play. This is a content creator betting on the brand type play where they think that Reese Witherspoon can become the next Oprah or Martha Stewart or, uh, you know, a, a, a personality around which media businesses can be launched. And if that's true, and we're seeing this exploding in the celebrity arena with, you know, booze deals or book deals or, you know, live experience deals, you know, Reese could go on a tour with all of her various personalities. If you can get in on that and own the creator economy for an A-list creator like Reese Witherspoon, there is value there. How do we think about this compared to the Netflix strategy? They don't buy companies. Generally, they 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 do big, expensive deals for talent, most notably Shonda Rhimes um, and a few others that are maybe less successful. Does, is this closer to that? At least in those cases, the Shonda Rhimes of the world have a track record of creating multiple shows at a decent clip. They're heavily involved. I don't think that's the case. With I mean, I, th- I think Hello Sunshine is a little different than that model. Yeah, I mean, the key for Netflix is ownership. Netflix is owning the output of these top creators forever. So, you know, even though Bridgerton is a big hit today, it's probably going to also be a a big hit in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And Netflix owns that in perpetuity. When you buy something like Hello Sunshine, yes, Reese and that company will get profit participation, perhaps, in the success of the show. But unless they significantly amp up their their deal making, they're not going to get ownership of these shows. And so you're not getting that long-term value. And that's what Netflix is paying for. They're paying for the exclusivity of these of the ownership rights. With the Reese business, and to a certain extent with some of the others, you are paying for the opportunity to create different businesses around her. Like I said, like the, you know, like the a sponsorship business, like a book club business, like a production business, yes, but that is a for a fee business. And the feeling I think is that yes, while this, the price tag doesn't seem to make sense in a traditional, you know, EBITDA multiple universe, <laughs> they are looking long term in the creator economy and how it's evolving and and having this in their arsenal will only help them first gather revenue and gather others around this model because they're going after others. Right. And so is this like Fox doing an NFL deal at a crazy premium in 1993 to just establish what Fox is, which also implies that they're not going to do a ton more of deals at this size, right? We got Reese, you can join us, but we're not going to give you a billion dollars for your production company. Yeah, I've heard it described to me as the foundation premium. You know, you get someone of her nature to come on board. You got to pay extra for that. And then others are and you give her control. Remember the board seats here. They are going to have a big say in what this company ends up looking like. And, you know, the others that come on board likely will not get deals nearly as much as as valuable as as uh, Reese Witherspoon does. It's just in the kinds of companies that they are looking at that you that have been reported, whether it's Imagine Entertainment, the Ron Howard and Brian Grazer company, or even LeBron's company, it's not going to be at that level. And I mean, you know, to, to, to reiterate, I think both you and I, and I assume a lot of other people said, there's no way this company is selling for anything close to that price when it first came up. This is a banker price. That's a price you float and you sell it for much less. Why were we wrong? What did we not get about either 
the value of the company or Blackstone slash my uh, Kevin Mayer slash Tom Stagg's desire to be in this business? Yeah, I mean, someone texted me, never underestimate, you know, the, the power of a banker that wants to get a deal done. And, you know, that may be true. Also, we're thinking about this in a traditional valuation ecosystem. You know, that's not what's going on these days. I mean, we're seeing it everywhere where companies are selling for multiples that don't make sense on paper. I mean, don't forget, Hello Sunshine was not even profitable until this year. And from everything I've heard is that their EBITDA numbers are not going to be anywhere near what would make this deal make sense at this number. Mm -hmm. But they are projecting out an ability to grow. And they're looking at this from a broader perspective where they believe that the halo around this kind of top level creator can, you know, float everybody's boat to a certain extent. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be true, but at least, you know, from some of the people in this world that I've talked to that, you know, say, oh, well, everything that Kevin Mayer has been involved in and the purchases that he did at Disney, everyone said that each one of them was too expensive and he proved them wrong. Look well, at, look at Pixar. That works, that works great if it's Lucasfilm, Pixar, and Marvel. Sure. It does not work great if you look at his digital stuff, which didn't work out. That, that is a good point. Maker Studios did not work. Uh, Club Penguin did not work. Um, you and know. they got very close to buying Vice, which would have been, uh, I think, a disaster. And Twitter. Don't forget Twitter. Yeah. I'm still unclear how close they got to Twitter. The, the, the Bob Iger story that one day he woke up and realized uh, <laughs> uh, they were doing the deal with, with Dorsey. And then he realized one day that, that Twitter was a cesspool of, of filth. <laughs> like, really? That's the sequence? Um, he is on Twitter, so, too. You'd think that yeah. he would know. So the conventional wisdom, the new conventional wisdom for streaming and, and media conglomerates for the last couple of years has been consolidation, consolidation. There's going to be a handful of winners in streaming. It'll be Netflix and Disney, and then you name your other players, depending on your view of the world. Um, and then in Hollywood, a lot of people are scared that, you know, this means there's only going to be a couple places to make a movie or a TV show. When you see someone like Blackstone throwing money around, is that part of that same thesis that this is going to be a consolidated world and we're going to be one of those top players? Uh, we're going to, or is it saying, no, actually, there's more room than people think? And, and this can't be a town where you can only get shows made at Warner, Disney, and Apple or whatever that combination is. That's a great question because the narrative has been that the, this entire consolidation effort and the vertical integration of streaming services within these media companies, the whole point is so that they don't have to buy content from outside suppliers like Hello Sunshine. So if you are, you know, Warner Media and you're having HBO Max launch, you've got a great TV studio in Warner Brothers Television and you've got a great production company in HBO. So why would you ever do deals with an outside supplier like that? That's one side of it, but these deals do get done. You know, there are independent production companies I can think of Churnin or MRC or uh, you know, uh, even imagine to a smaller extent. Vox are, Media Studios, I can hear my employees. Vox Media saying. Studios, sure. But there are independent, you know, there are independent studios that are not either owned or exclusively affiliated with one of the streamers. And their thesis is it's not going to be possible to totally wall your garden. The talent doesn't want that. 
The industry at large doesn't want that. And you're going to see the best projects migrate to the highest bidders. And if that can be Blackstone, one of the wealthiest companies in America, they're going to be a compelling lure for talent. And the streamers will follow the talent because at the end of the day, they're trying to build subscription businesses. And if the best projects are from outside studios, they're going to have to deal with them. Speaking of Walt Garden and Control and Disney, let's talk about Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow and Bob Chapek. Um, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. It seems like there was a flurry of news late last week and we haven't heard much since. But catch us up. Where are we in the Scarlett Johansson versus Disney saga? So just for people who have not followed along, she, after months of trying to negotiate this privately, she sued last week on, on Thursday saying that by putting Black Widow on Disney Plus for a $30 upcharge at the same time it was in theaters, she was deprived of the full value of her box office bonuses, which we learned was almost $50 million uh, that she believes she would have made if Black Widow had gotten a traditional theatrical exclusive release and had not been put on. Right. She wasn't Disney guaranteed Plus. $50 million, but she thinks she could have made that much theoretically if it had Absolutely. performed really well in all these different markets. And, and that Disney, by propping up Disney Plus with this A-plus level movie, they are diverting resources to build subscribers on a platform that she does not participate in, but that the CEO of the Walt Disney Company benefits from when his stock price goes up every time they announce higher subscriber numbers. Uh, Disney responded to this very, very strongly, unusually strongly. They outed the fact that she had already been paid $20 million up front, a fact that was not in her lawsuit, and Disney decided to reveal that. They also said she was insensitive to the COVID-19 pandemic and that you know, even though Disney chose the release date, um, she was somehow to blame for money grubbing when you know, we're all dealing with the pandemic. Then her agent, Scarlett Johansson's agent, responded to them saying that they were you know, uh, shameless and this is not the Walt Disney Company that the talent community has known for many years. Um, so that's where we are right now. So there's accusations of self-dealing, stars fighting with studios and, and their financiers about what's, what they should have got, the accounting, that's old. Um, on the other hand, this is extraordinary because it's new and public. Is it new and public because there's something very specific about Scarlett Johansson and Marvel and Disney? Or is this part of a story where we're going to see more of this because streaming and accounting over streaming and who gets the benefits or streaming are a genuinely new concept? Uh, I think all of it is true. Um, first of all, they Scarlett Johansson knew the power of going public here, and they've had this over Disney for months now. It's not a secret that in Hollywood, a lot of people have been upset and nervous and uh, questioning where the incentives are for these companies, because that's ultimately what we're talking about here. Throughout the history of talent and studios, They've kind of been aligned in how they get paid. The better the movie does, the more the studio makes and the more ultimately the star will make. They can fight over whether they are being accounted to properly or whatever. But what we've seen with these streaming services is that the incentives are not aligned anymore. The incentive for Disney is to build up subscribers to Disney Plus. And that is 100% what this company is doing. Mm -hmm. They are being rewarded by it. 
uh, announcing big subscriber numbers, the stock keeps going up. But you have a star here whose deal was made under the old regime, pre-Disney Plus, where the entirety of her, the value of the contract is dependent on box office performance. So that doesn't add up here. They could have gone to her and say, listen, our priorities have changed. The world has changed. The pandemic is requiring us to be nimble here. Here's 10, 20, 30 million dollars to pay you as if this movie was going to be a hit and we'll settle with you at that number. That could have happened. And I believe under the old regime under Bob Iger, it probably would have happened. He would have recognized the value of settling rather than having this huge thing that people like you and I are now talking Certainly about. Certainly they had some discussion, right? There's just oh, no did. way they just said, take it, to, our offer is nothing, you'll like it, right? It's not The Godfather too. This is what Disney's argument is. Disney's argument is we are paying you. We are putting the premium access money into the box office pool. Meaning if this movie makes $500 million at the box office and it grosses uh, you know, $100 million on premium access, your box office pool will be based on that 600 million. You can make more than the 20 million we've already paid you. Absolutely, that is what they are saying. And that is the strategy they have approached all of their bonus talent on for these summer movies that are debuting day and date. Obviously the talent doesn't like that because the money that's going to premium access is money that's being taken away from $15 movie tickets and it's not apples and oranges. Plus, they're taking out the money that goes to the digital distributors like Roku or Amazon Fire. Mm -hmm. They're not sharing that. And they're not sharing the benefit of Disney Plus keeping subscribers in that universe and adding additional Disney Plus subscribers for $8 a month. So there's a lot of things at work here that Disney thinks it's doing okay, but the talent is not happy. And there's an example of a studio that made everybody happy. Which is Warner. Yes. Right. Warner Brothers, when they announced their day and day strategy for 2021, everyone freaked out. Agents put out statements. Same People, agents that are yelling at Disney now. Absolutely. Chris Nolan, the director, Denis Villeneuve, the director, both slammed the plan. Warner said, oh, crap, went back to all of the talent and, according to the journal, gave them $200 million. Right. And, and Warner over. says, we always planned on doing this, by the way. We're they not did, stupid. I, I, we were I always going to write a check. Yeah. Twitter back and forth with Jason Kyler about this. Yes, they planned to make people happy in a fair way, they said. They didn't realize exactly how big the checks would be that, that, that they were going to have to cut because of the outcry. And they didn't communicate this plan to anybody in advance. So they ended up having to write big checks. And they're still negotiating. And, right. As of last week, the Dune studio had not finalize this deal. And there's another example of this, right, which is it's slightly different, but still the same, which is Netflix, when they moved, when they kicked this all off, said, there is no back end, there's no box office. Uh, so we're going to give Adam Sandler a way more money up front than he would ever make from Hollywood these days. And everyone laughed and they said, actually, it's a pretty good deal. And they've, they've done a lot of that. It's, we're paying you a lot up front. That's your one payment. And that's that. And that's the model. Is there something particular about Scarlett Johansson and her career and what she wants to do? Um, and also Bob Chapek, the new CEO of Disney, where they're at this extraordinary point where where they're where Disney is, you know, dissing high profile talent in a movie that's out right now publicly. Um, is there something about those two personalities or careers that, that has led to this point? Well, what's interesting about Johansson is that she's decided to sue in the prime of her career, 
but she's 36 years old. She's coming off a, a huge studio blockbuster starring her. This is not some aging talent who's trying to make a last grasp for money. Now, it is true that her Marvel deal is ending, so she doesn't have to be in business with Disney anymore if she doesn't want to. But presumably, she doesn't want to become a pariah and the one who is going to sue you if you do a deal with her. So this is a, that's why this is a big step for her to take. I think it is an inflection point for Disney. I mean, a lot of people have said this is, including me, that this would have never happened under Iger. I believe that. But the lines of how talent are going to be paid for the next 10 to 20 years are all being drawn right now. Because these studios are all launching their own subscription services. They are altering the model to mimic Netflix and, and get rid of these big back ends and the situations where a big star can make $100 million on a movie where the studio profit line isn't much more than that itself. And the talent is saying, you know what? We fought for and we earned the right to get this paycheck. We're not going to give that up without a fight. So, so both, si both sides have incentive bottom. to fight now because... In theory, this is going to be the new normal. So let's let's hash it out and figure it out. Absolutely. The agents all talk about this, that the deals at these companies, Disney, Warner, Universal Comcast, Netflix, they are all getting defined right now. And we're going from a linear television world to a streaming world where box office is less important and the subscriber numbers are all being so how is talent going to be valued in this ecosystem? And the old models where there's a 30-page definition of profits that you get in each individual territory for pay TV for the next 25 years, that doesn't matter when the movie is sold to Netflix in perpetuity. What also strikes me that, you know, the thing that everyone knows but generally won't say out loud is however long this streaming boom we're in now is where you have a bunch of people, the Apples and Amazons and Warner Media and Netflix all throwing billions, different amounts of billions. The, the intent is for them to not keep doing that in perpetuity, that things will settle at some point. And instead of having eight different streaming services, there will be three or four. And that if you're Netflix or Disney or whoever, the bidding wars won't be anything like this. And you will actually be able to ratchet down the amount of comp um, you're paying, maybe not overall, but at least per project. Um, and I think that is probably driving some of this fight on both sides as well. I think that's absolutely true. And Netflix has realized that the, the pay now so that we can own the market and, uh, and not pay later strategy um, is going to take a lot of paying now, especially as these other competitors ramp up. But you're already seeing a version of this with Disney. Disney has spent over the last 20 years billions of dollars amassing these IP brands that are so powerful in the marketplace that they approach talent saying, you know what, the IP is the star and you are great, we love you, but you're not even gonna get paid the typical profit participation that one might expect because the star is the IP, not you. Just the fact the next, that- Scarlet The next Iron Man is not getting Robert Downey Jr. money. Oh, it's gonna be yeah, a, absolutely. a lot less. Uh, Downey, Downey is paid what he's paid because his deal for the first Iron Man was extraordinary. It gave him a profit participation because it, Marvel was nothing. They had no, they had no brand. They had nothing. But the people that sign on to Marvel movies now, you're lucky if you get these box office bonuses, or they kick in at five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred million dollars because they know the brand is the star. These actors on Star Wars, their box office bonuses, I am told, didn't kick in until almost a billion dollars because 
It's Star Wars, stupid. That's the brand. It doesn't matter if you're Daisy Ridley or if you're Oscar Isaac. The brand is the brand. So that's Disney exerting its influence. And there's been pushback in the talent community. And they've got around it with these bonuses that they've given stars like Emma Stone and Emily Blunt and Scarlett Johansson. But now all of that is being reconsidered because of the incentives at play with streaming. So we have one example. It's an extraordinary example. You, you know, in journalism, we need two more to call it a trend. You floated the idea last week that Emily Blunt, who's also in a Disney movie that has another one of these, you know, $30 rental or, or in the theater um, setups might also complain. We have not heard her complain publicly. Are we going to see more people in public having this fight or is this a one-off? I, I don't know about public, but I do know that privately, these are conversations that are being had all the time even before the Scarlet situation. I mean, I, Emily Blunt and John Krasinski had those conversations with Paramount around A Quiet Place 2, and that was a situation where the movie went to streaming after a, I believe it was either a 30 or 40-day window, and they were upset. They thought that might cut into the box office. In retrospect, that seems like a pretty generous window that they had for theaters, especially at a time in May when vaccines weren't that widely available. But they raised that issue and Paramount kind of got them to calm down. But I know that the stars of the Disney movies this summer have all raised this issue with the studio. They want to be paid. And Disney has made some overtures in recent days, specifically with the stars of Cruella, Jungle Cruise, Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, those are the movies that have, uh, and Black Widow, those are the movies that have gone day and date this summer. They haven't said whether anything further into the fall is going to model this. Um, Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds is coming out in a couple weeks. That is going to be a theatrical exclusive. But anytime a movie goes day and date now or on a very truncated window, those stars are going to have that conversation with the studio. We're going to have you back so we can talk more about this. Before we go, uh, I just want to talk for a second about, about the newsletters you're doing twice a week, not once a week, like I thought. They're great. I love them. They're an instant hit. People are reading them. They strike me as fundamentally different than what you were doing at Hollywood Reporter, which you ran for several years. Am I right in thinking it's a different product? Is it? And if so, is it because the format's different or the audience is different or the business model is different? I think all of it. Uh, for me, what's been fun about the newsletter format has been the intimacy. I, it's interesting. You know, I ran The Hollywood Reporter, which is a, a decent sized brand, but I would never get feedback from people. And people would never email me unless it was a publicist complaining or something. And, you know, our open rates on newsletter products were low. And, you know, it's, it's just that people didn't have that relationship with the brand. Now, I think when I send an email to people who have signed up to get it from me, it almost feels like it's a, a conversation or a, an email from an, a plugged in friend. It's a much more intimate experience. And I'm writing them that way. I'm writing them as if I was talking to a friend over lunch, because I, I think that's kind of what's missing from the landscape in these kinds of businesses, whether it's tech or media or Hollywood, that conversation with the reader. Yep. And that also, here's what's actually happening. I'm going to try to explain it in plain English, but also it's also for insiders going to walk that balance. In theory, you could have done that at Hollywood Reporter. You could have had Matt's weekly note. It's My hunch is that the structure of the trade itself and sort of who who you need to get money from and who you need for access is different than doing this. You still need access and you still want people to pay you. But it strikes me that there's something 
different about the model. And, and part of the reason I think that is Richard Rushfield, who you've worked with in the past, came on and said as much a couple of weeks ago when I talked about his newsletter, that he thinks there's something fundamentally different about the subscription newsletter that changes the way that you can speak. I think that's probably true. But, you know, one of the things that I prided myself on in the former job at Hollywood Reporter was the ability to do tougher stories while also maintaining those relationships. Um, but the relationships are important. I mean, now I don't have to worry about who's going to, what celebrity is going to be on the cover of the magazine mm -hmm. next week. And that's a, you know, once you're in that game, you have to play ball. Um, and obviously in the trade universe, the publications are supported by advertising from the companies that you're covering. So that inherently uh, creates conflicts, but those are manageable conflicts. Yeah. And if you're running those publications in a professional way, you can manage those relationships and people can have their say and you can still do tough stories, but it's a very fine line to walk and you really need to have long-term relationships in the community to be able to walk that line. And it's tough. And I'm happy that in the new role, I still adhere to journalistic principles and no one is surprised by what I'm writing. I call for comment and I, but you have, you can have a little more edge and you can be more conversational and you can tell people what's really happening. I love reading it. I love that you came on the show to talk about it. Matt Bellany will be watching you and Puck News and my, my former colleague, Teddy Schleifer. Uh, wish you all luck. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Matt for coming on. Fun conversation. I think we'll have him on again sometime. We're going to hear from Derek Thompson in a minute, but first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. And now here's Derek Thompson. I'm here with Derek Thompson, longtime Recode media guest. His day job is, is working at The Atlantic. He's an excellent writer and podcaster. Hey, Derek. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, I think this is usually a poor start to a podcast, but I want to start talking about some tweets we did over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about our tweets. I, yes, let's talk about our tweets. I, with the, real, the, the real point of this is to have a discussion about the way media is covering COVID in general, and specifically the, the Delta moment we're having right now. So 
Um, again, I think this might be a terrible idea, but you put out a <laughs> quote uh, this weekend uh, referencing, I don't know, it was an NBC headline about the, the number of people who'd had a breakthrough infection. And you wrote, it's really a shame President Joe Biden signed that executive order banning the use of denominators in COVID headlines. Um, nothing even better than reading a tweet than having you uh, explain the tweet. But but tell us <laughs> what you were trying to get across there. Yeah, I feel like we were breaking like every cardinal rule of podcasting. Yeah, I know. By Everyone just talking clicked about off Twitter, reading just you and me talking. And then uh, uh, analyzing uh, our, our past tweets. Yeah, sure. Uh, big picture. I think that Delta is a confusing moment for... A lot of people, including journalists, also including public health communicators. I think it's a confusing thing to summarize. Headlines are in the business of summary. You don't have any option if you're in the headline game uh, of summarize or don't summarize. You have to summarize. And if you're going to do so, you have to. I, I think you should do so in a way that is clear and useful for people. So the question- And also makes them want to pay attention to what you're saying as well. Very right? important and true, yes. So the question that I was trying to answer in that tweet, the question that I think a lot of people are trying to answer as they analyze Delta, is how do we communicate the data to people in a way that is clarifying and true and not sensationalist? If all you do, I think, is provide the sheer number of breakthrough cases. I think it's 120,000 breakthrough cases that uh, CDC has tracked so far. If all you do is provide that number, 120,000, that might sound like a really high number to a lot of people. And in some contexts, 120,000 people is a pretty high number. I know a lot of people that know people that have had uh, breakthrough infections after getting fully vaccinated. However, Tens of millions, over 100 million Americans have been vaccinated, which means you have a breakthrough rate that's extremely small and then a severe illness rate that's much smaller and a death rate that's even smaller. And so it seems to me that when people, when you're in a moment of mass vaccine hesitancy and you're trying to communicate something about the effectiveness of these vaccines, is the best way to communicate that effectiveness to talk about the numerator or is it to talk about the rate so, for example, to create a quick uh, analogy, and then uh, you can tell me where you disagree, you know, it is a fact that there are a lot of Tylenol overdoses every year, every decade. There are a lot of ibuprofen overdoses. But that's because everyone is taking Tylenol as a rate. It is a very, very small rate of overdose. So if all you do is share the numerator of Tylenol overdoses, I think you are miscommunicating the safety of that medicine. And I think that focusing on the numerator with the vaccines and breakthroughs is miscommunicating uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine overall. Right. And we have a difficult time with risk in general and thinking through a new risk is always scarier to us than risk that we already are taking on consciously or unconsciously. It's much you know, it's much more dangerous for you to drive to the airport than to get in the plane. But most people are much more nervous getting on the plane than they are getting in the car. There isn't good data about breakthroughs, and we can talk more about that. But it seems like the, there was a Kaiser study that out late last week that I think they're maybe guessing 1% of the vaccinated population is having breakthroughs in some form or another. And breakthroughs can literally just mean that you've, you've been reinfected, you're asymptomatic, you don't even know it. Um, so we could get to that. But I, I wanted to pick up the second point you, you made about we're trying to reach and persuade people to get vaccinated, and this headline isn't helpful. And I'm a little stuck there because while I'm sure that everyone working in every newsroom 99% of the people working in most newsrooms want people to get vaccinated. 
I'm not 100% sure that's their job. And I worry that when they think it's their job and they overemphasize something or underemphasize something, they're actually creating distrust. And so they're actually making that job harder. Uh, Bob Wachter, uh, I'm going to read one of his tweets, a uh, UCSF uh, doctor who's who's gotten a lot of profile over the last year, and I think is a pretty good, sane and level-headed source about this stuff, um, talked about this yesterday. I'm not going to read his full tweet, but it talked about the continued use of the term rare, which is what we hear a lot uh, about breakthroughs from some government officials and media creates a don't believe what you see credibility problem. He suggests we call it uncommon. And, you know, talking about headline usage on Twitter is is kind of a key Twitter use case. And I think it <laughs> is ultimately not that useful. But but the idea that we either can't trust the public with data um, or the public can't trust the people who are giving us the data to be straightforward about it, something that has bothered me for some time. During the Trump administration, you had the, the federal government actively working to disinform us. Mm -hmm. But this, I'm really talking for a while. Like now, last spring, I, I noticed this a lot um, with vaccine side effects, where we were told that side effects were rare. But any conversation you had with anybody in April, May, June was, what vax did you get and did you have side effects? Something mm -hmm. everyone talked about. Part of the gap was that what the CDC or doctors considered to be a, a, a side effect and what a normal person considered to be a side effect weren't the same. But I got the impression that public health and media outlets that talked to public health officials were maybe going out of their way to not emphasize that. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, so much of what you just said resonates with me. Um, I, I kind of want to sort of bifurcate my thinking along two lines. So first, I want to frame everything that I'm about to say under the umbrella of vaccine hesitancy is not a war that will be won with the artillery of perfect headlines alone, period, right? Like when people like you and me and someone from NBC and someone from Vox New York Times are arguing about the ideal way to represent breakthrough rates and headlines that are overwhelmingly written by, read by, and argued about by people that are already vaccinated, then clearly we probably aren't at the ground zero of where the war on vaccine hesitancy is going to be won, which is going to be won, I think, maybe on Fox News, maybe in conservative radio, maybe at a phalanx of doctor's offices around the country where people talk to the vaccine hesitant and say, do this for your family, do this Churches, for yourself. Churches, et cetera. Yeah. Churches, et cetera. Exactly. So that's a, 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 uh, a preamble that I want to sort of get out of the way. That said, I think it's really important that we think about when we're writing headlines, not just uh, what is going to work uh, in terms of persuading people, but what is true. And this is where I totally agree with you, that I think that a lot of times journalists and public health communicators have gotten over their skis by trying to be a little bit too psychologically creative, by framing the truth and that which they think will lead to the outcome that they want, rather than just say what is true. It is straightforwardly true that these vaccines do have side effects and that a lot of people, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's probably something like 30, 40 percent um, or maybe higher of people that have gotten the mRNA vaccines, which are very effective, have also experienced one day, two days, maybe more days of feeling kind of like shit. And, and that's just a fact, right? Like a lot of people experience that. To the point where people were taking days off on yeah. their vax day in anticipation of them not being able to work, where Apple said, by the way, for all employees who are getting vaxxed, just go ahead and take the next day off as our, as our policy. Exactly. And, that be, and that's where I think it's so important to just say the truth, because eventually the truth is going to make, con eventually like this makes contact with people's lives and businesses need to make decisions about like, what do we do if our entire 
uh, organization of a thousand people is getting vaccinated. And judging by the numbers, 300 of them are going to like feel, you know, kind of crappy for a day. That's just a, it's a fact of life. I think you have to be straightforward about it. And I do think that public health communicators, the CDC and journalists have not done a good job um, of separating sort of their strategy from just their, you know, from the just the facts, ma'am approach to, to COVID uh, uh, reporting and communication, which is what I would prefer. That said, from a just the facts perspective, let's go back to Bob Walker, who I think is fantastic. And here we go talking about Twitter again. I think he had this amazing thread that had this statistic that jumped out at me as being so clarifying and so important. It said that relative to not being vaccinated, the vaccines decrease the odds of getting COVID by 8x, decrease the odds of being hospitalized by 25x, and decrease the odds of dying by 25x. That to me is like, that's the nut graph. That's the nut graph and the headline and the deck. Like that rate of improvement is what we should be talking about when we talk about these vaccines, because it is what matters. Reducing odds by 8x or 25x doesn't make breakthroughs impossible. Yep. It simply strongly and clearly reduces the population-wide expectation that you will get one. And this is where we can sort of meet in the middle. It seems to me like the appropriate response is, yes, there are a lot of breakthroughs. And by the way, maybe more than we thought. We can sidebar that. But if you're vaccinated, because you're vaccinated, it's very unlikely you're going to be sick or even have mild side effects. And that's a lot to put in a headline, but that seems like what you want the headline to be. And I could go with that. What I have a problem with is saying, don't worry about breakthroughs because the real, the, the important thing is that you're not going to get sick. It, to, be, to be told, don't worry about this thing that was not on your radar until a couple weeks ago and now is very much on your radar is bothersome. Along with, we always knew this was going to be the case. You don't understand what efficacy means. If it was 95% efficacy, then then 5% people would, would get infected, blah, blah, blah. Like this was all known and it, it wasn't. It certainly was not communicated last spring and in, in both public and private behavior. We were basically told you get vaxxed, you're good. You could take your mask off, you can party, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, no, that this, is that I find very frustrating to be told. No, this was always the plan. What are yeah, you talking about? This is where I'm so happy that we got on the phone or on the computer to talk to each other, because on Twitter, when we were going back and forth about this, it was like a polite fight. It wasn't like a capital F fight, yeah. but it was like a polite fight. And here is where I totally agree with what you're saying. It does no good to pretend like these vaccines have no neg like are, are a perfect uh, force field of protection. And it does no good to adopt a mentality that says, you know, let's have a hush campaign about breakthrough cases and just never talk about them and hope that that will increase the odds that, that people accept these vaccines. I think that we are lucky that these vaccines work so well to protect against the worst outcomes that we're better off just consistently telling the truth and finding compelling ways to communicate the truth, which is that breakthroughs happen. They are everywhere because Delta is contagious and a lot of people are vaccinated, but also the vaccines are very good at blocking severe illness and death. And it's interesting because the uh, I was doing a podcast about, um, I've done a few podcasts with Bill Simmons um, to talk about vaccines. So I've noticed I'm, I'm not bitter. Which has you, been you really- You got your start with me, you went to Bill, I understand. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. 
It's, which has been really fun because I've really tried to think about, you know, how do you communicate to an audience of people who, I mean, his audience is absolutely massive, an audience of people who are typically coming there to hear about basketball and football analysis, about, you know, vaccinology. And, you know, Bill and I workshopped like a, a metaphor that I think is, is really useful. And, and the credit goes to him for getting the ball rolling here, where he said, you know, think about this pandemic as an epidemic of rattlesnakes, an infestation of rattlesnakes. The vaccine does three things. First, it eliminates a lot of the rattlesnakes, right? That's the equivalent of, of blocking infection from the disease in the first place. Second, among the rattlesnakes that it doesn't eliminate, because there's a couple breakthrough rattlesnakes, it defangs almost all of them, right? That's the equivalent of severe illness. And then among the few, few uh, uh, rattlesnakes that it doesn't defang, it devenoms most of the remaining rattlesnakes with fangs. That's the um, protection against death. And I think what's interesting and, and kind of actually really, really uh, scientifically important about that metaphor is to remember that when you're reading my breakthrough cases, the vaccine is doing three things. It's fighting against breakthroughs, it's fighting against severe illness, and it's fighting against death. And if you can emphasize all three things while acknowledging the presence of breakthrough cases, I think you're on pretty good ground at truthfully representing what the vaccines are doing without over-promising some kind of silver bullet outcome that they're uh, so creating. So we can't go back and fix what we did and didn't communicate months ago, weeks ago, and we're still screwing it up today. I'm watching the New York City mayor's office explain that there's going to be a new vaccine pass that you're going to need uh, to go to, to city restaurants, but it turns out it's actually not a pass. It's not a new pass. It's it's a it's a whole thing. Um, and but the the complement of media criticism is is as media consumers, what should we be doing? Let's 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 take it as an article of faith that everyone who is reading uh, reading our tweets and certainly listening to this podcast is vaccinated, right? So they don't need to be told why they should get the vaccine. We're done there. They are trying to think hard about what breakthroughs mean to them, whether they should mask up, whether they should take that trip, go to that party, host that conference is a thing we're thinking very specifically about. We're going to host our conferences in the fall. By the way, you will have to be vaccinated to attend is the, is the short answer. But, but you and I are paid in part to read Twitter um, and talk about this stuff and to actually look into this stuff. If you are a regular person who has a day job, what's the best way for you to practically learn about real effects. Um, when we're in a world where if you read the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, you would read a story or Vox saying breakthroughs are rare, right? And you're like, we, I went to an authoritative source, they're rare, but it's not syncing with what I see, which is I know a dozen people who've had breakthroughs, whatever. How, what's the best framework for sort of being able to just make it through the day to get through, you know, any day of planning and thinking about how to go about your life. My media strategy here is go to the source. I love journalists. I am a journalist. Some of my best friends are journalists, but I don't want to hang my knowledge of this virus and the vaccine exclusively on the representation by journalists of experts when I can just read the experts. When I can just go to the CDC website and look at the data, or when I can just go to, you know, our world in data and compare case rates in the U.S. versus the U.K. versus Israel, say, you know, or in Canada, some of the more vaccinated yep. places and see the, the huge discrepancy now between cases and deaths. I think it's, you know, now that 
and it's not just me, it's, it's everyone with an internet connection, has the ability to follow the Bob Wachters of the world and find the data for themselves. I, I encourage people to, to do that research. I'm not trying to be, you know, overly critical or nihilistic about, about journalism. I, I hope people read The Atlantic. I think we do great work. And I think that The Times and other organizations have done good work too. But yeah, they've also all messed up um, from time to time. And, and, they've, and they've misrepresented in an adjectival kind of way, I think, as, as you're pointing out, what is the case, right? We were told that breakthroughs were going to be extremely rare. And now, you know, from my perspective, I, I know, and I think most people that I know, know people that have had breakthrough cases. So it doesn't seem as rare as we were promised. Um, that I think might be true. It is also true, though, that from a epidemic and ending standpoint, um, from a death standpoint, the vaccines have been just about as successful um, as they were promised. And so, yeah, my, my strategy is, again, to go to the source and focus on what, what really matters. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many people, maybe some of the people who listen to this podcast are going to click through and, and dive into CDC stuff on their own. Good for them. God bless them. I guess my, my thought would be the opposite of that, would be do less reading. Um, and maybe step away from the computer a little bit. And with the understand, not that you want to tune yourself out of news, but understanding this is a moving event and things that we thought literally a week or two weeks ago may not be right, or that study that your mother-in-law, pastor-in-law about uh, vaccines being less effective in Israel may not be the only story. And this would be something where you'll be better served in a couple weeks once people have synthesized all this for you and you could take a little break from consuming all this which doesn't really help you in the moment, but that's, that's where I would go. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I, you're right. I don't have the option of, of fully disconnecting, as you said, because it's, it's, it's my job to follow it. And, yeah, if you, and if you're asking me, you know, what's my strategy, my strategy is, is to go to the source as often as I can. In terms of other people's strategy, look, I, there's no formula here. Like, um, thinking for yourself is hard. Finding experts to, uh, that are right is hard. And then consistently reevaluating your expert selection process is also hard. Um, one of the sort of ironies that I've seen in the last few months that's gotten me into a bit of hot water with people I would consider my co-partisans online is that I've made fun of sort of the, the new liberal attitude towards science with a capital S, which is, you know, uh, a, a set of immutable laws that are permanently holding up their middle finger to conservative America. Now, look, I, I think that for a variety of reasons, a lot of Republicans in this country have become anti-science in a way that is uh, not only bad for the country, but specifically bad for them. And in, in some cases, it's literally killing them if they're becoming infected by a virus that they refuse to vaccinate against. At the same time, I think that the sort of modern internet-y liberal definition of capital S science is actually the opposite of science. Science is not a set of immutable laws that cares about politics. Science is this messy, hopefully well-meaning set of experimental processes that arrive at conclusions that constantly need to be reevaluated by new scientists. And if you're the sort of person that, you know, sort of hangs your hat on a scientific conclusion that fits your ideology on a Tuesday, you need to be prepared that by Thursday, that scientific conclusion might be mixed up in some way by a bunch of other studies. Like I found this very clearly when I was reporting on, um, on hygiene theater, my term yep. for um, obsession with sort of cleaning surfaces in a disease that is overwhelmingly spread uh, through the air, through aerosols. And there were scientific journals publishing scientific papers about the threat of on, this yep. virus 
being drawn from surfaces. I think that for a variety of reasons, don't have to go into the methodology of those papers was absolutely horrid. But science was saying a bunch of different stuff about this disease and surfaces. And so simply saying science with a capital S has one conclusion and that conclusion fits my ideology, that that doesn't jive with, with reality. And so this, again, goes to the fact that staying on top of a novel coronavirus uh, requires constantly thinking through what a bunch of people are saying. There, you've mentioned there is a political angle here, right? I mean, obviously, like it's we've seen this in studies. It's it's basically the thing that most determines whether you're getting vaccinated or not is whether you voted for Trump. There's lots of other groups. It's not one monolith, but that's the determinant. Usually, the thing that is most likely predicts whether you're getting vaccinated. Uh, someone who works at a at a paper of record uh, who was following our Twitter exchange um, and was kind of on my side uh, sent me a note saying. It also feels like there's been a major messaging flip from last summer as cases surge again. Now it's Biden administration officials attacking the media coverage and publicly implying it's a play to boost web traffic. Liberals are mocking the CDC and saying they won't abide by its guidance. Does that, I, I think I think there's something to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a neat analogy because you had, again, you had a Trump administration and Republicans going out of their way to play down a, a real threat. And this is a little bit different, but it, there's something there. Yeah, I can see how, look, any administration is going to want the press to represent reality in a way that is kind to that administration. So the Trump team obviously had an extremely adversary relationship with the press and was trying to control them into representing things that often weren't true. And the Biden administration seems to me like a decaf version of that. You know, they would like the press to represent the reality on the ground in a way that makes them look good. That, that doesn't seem like, an, like, a, like a new political phenomenon. I would separately say that there's definitely a class of people, probably um, overrepresented on sort of the uh, sort of centrist and center-left college-educated people who are just kind of done with this pandemic. Yep. And if you're just kind of done with the pandemic and you got vaccinated with the expectation that that meant you can just go back to your life, then you are rooting for your Twitter feed and your news headlines to represent your internal narrative, which is, I'm done. fucking done with this. I'm back to school. Um, I'm back to work. I'm We're back done. to school. Right. I'm back. Don't give me headlines suggesting that back is wrong. Um, so, you know, I find myself sort of adjacent to that ideology, to be totally blunt. You know, I would I would love for this pandemic I'm, I'm 100% to be over. there. Yeah. I, feel very, I feel very red state in yeah. that sense. <laughs> right. And so that's a case where, again, I just think it's important to... <laughs> I guess just be, you know, lowercase s scientific about all of this. Um, the data doesn't care about ideology and the data doesn't care about priors. And it's hard but important to just keep following uh, in, for a position like like mine to keep following the news and not allow the story that you're rooting for to eclipse the story that is. Derek Thompson, you can read him on Twitter. You can read him at his day job at The Atlantic. You can hear him on The Bill Simmons Show. I think sometime next year you'll be able to see him on TV or a streaming service because he participated in the CNN project we're working on. You're very uh, yes. good on camera, Derek. So look forward to that. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek. Thanks again to Matt. Thanks again to our sponsors and Joel and Jelani for editing, producing the show. And thanks, most of all, to you. You, the Recode Media Listener, you're great. You're attractive, you're smart, I like you. I'll see you next week.